everybody and welcome to JTV. So today we're joined by Rabbi Tovia Singer, who is the director of Outreach Judaism, which deals with uh, responses uh, to, to Christian missionaries and responses to the kind of things that are said um, by Christian missionaries who approach Jewish people and try to convince them of the basic tenets of Christian theology. Now, this is obviously a very uncontroversial uh, interview that's not going to be of interest to uh, <laughs> that many people. I say that ironically because um, our channel, JTV, um, I think has a, a decent amount of Christian uh, viewers. Uh, we're predominantly a Jewish channel um, with uh, Jewish viewers, um, but there are people from other faiths that, that listen to JTV content. And so I just wanted to say a few things from the outset which is number one, um, I'm a big supporter of Jewish-Christian relations um, and this is something that I think has been a, uh, something that's been flourishing a lot over the last few decades and I think it's a good thing uh, within reason um, to be seeing. The second thing I want to say is that while we may have, uh, as Jews and Judaism may have issue with Christianity as a theology, we're not talking about Christians. Judaism believes that every single human being is created in the image of God and we want to share um, our Torah um, and basic principles of Jewish belief with anyone and everyone. And the third thing I want to acknowledge is that Judaism in some respects views uh, the Abrahamic monotheisms of Christianity and Islam as actually positive uh, ste uh, steps for humanity and bringing them closer to the Abrahamic uh, monotheistic God, the God of Israel. So, and so that's basically to acknowledge that Christianity does um, a lot of good, I think, from, from a Jewish perspective. So that's just the kind of the, the caveat I wanted to add at the very start. Um, but Rabbi, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. I know you're very, very uh, popular on YouTube and on the internet, so we really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure to join you here on air. So can you briefly tell us what you do and how you came to do this work of anti-Christian missionary uh, work, and then we'll go into the details of the, the theological stuff. But how did you get into this? When I, was a, when I was a youngster and I saw groups like Jews for Jesus, I was just completely shocked. Now, as it turns out, these are fundamentalist evangelical Protestant Christians, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But when I saw these fundamentalist Christians targeting Jews for conversion and Jews actually crossed that line, I don't know about you, I was completely shocked. And I knew that I had to respond to this and I realized that I, I need to understand, have a very good idea of what it is that they believe and what is, why are people joining this and why are they targeting Jews for, con for conversion? This was something very, very offensive to me. I was born 15 years after the Holocaust. For me, growing up, it was about the survival of our people. And here was a group, one of many, as it turns out, that was utterly devoted to eradicating the Jewish faith by converting Jewish people to Christianity. And in a way that was strikingly dishonest. So you had this, this was really a consumer fraud issue. It means they were presenting uh, Christianity in a way that was not straightforward 
and they did that in order to lure Jews who would otherwise resist the straightforward message, and I understood that I had to respond. I didn't realize that I would ever take it to the level it is today, you know, with books and a large channel and a lot of, a lot of public speaking, but I knew something had to be done, and I'm very grateful that I do something that, I, that makes a very big difference in the world. Wow, wow. Um, well, I'd like to talk about the sort of the, the main arguments that, that you make, that Christian missionaries make. But before I do that, um, I, I just wanted to ask a question about priorities and what you say, what your response would be to people that say, is this really a priority? You know, I, I remember uh, when I was in New York a couple of years ago and I was wearing a, a kippah, a yarmulke, and I was sitting on a bus and some Christian missionary went up to me and says, you know, do you believe in, in the Savior, in Jesus? And if you don't, you're going to burn in hell. And um, there were these two women in their sort of mid, mid 40s or 50s, I guess, who were sitting behind me. And they said, leave the poor guy alone. Leave him alone. He's just, uh, you know, just minding his business and all that kind of thing. And um, the guy eventually left. He got up at the, at the next stop. And I turned around, you know, I thanked these, these, these two women and... Uh, because I didn't sort of respond to this guy and I was just kind of sitting there because he, he, he wasn't in the he wasn't showing himself to be someone that wanted to respond he just wanted to preach and scream at me and um, afterwards the two women got off at the next stop and as they were about to get off they said Jesus bless you <laughs> so um, so even they were, were, were thinking constantly about uh, Christianity and, and sort of missionizing Jews in a different style but I just wonder, you know, I, I know from, from my Jewish circle, and that, that encompasses people from the religious to not religious at all, I find that if any of them were to be approached by a Christian missionary, and this is just my experience, um, even if they're not at all religious, they brush it off, they're not interested, because they are still, at the end of the day, proud Jews and they're not interested in becoming Christian. I mean, they're not, some of these people who aren't really, they're not, they're not interested in, in Judaism or Jewish practice full, full stop or any kind of spiritual practice. Um, so my question before we dive into the theology is, why is this a priority in terms of outreach Judaism as opposed to just explaining uh, to Jewish people what, what Judaism is who would otherwise not be engaged in any kind of spirituality? So you're, you're highlighting the problem. The Jews who are most susceptible to groups like Chosen People Ministries and Jews for Jesus and Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries are those that know little to nothing about the faith they're being asked to abandon. The people who are most susceptible to this message know so little about their own Jewish scriptures. And when they're approached by missionaries, they just have no clue how to respond. And moreover, it, it's important for your viewers to understand there are two rules about Jewish evangelism you just really never want to forget. Rule number one is the person who's most likely to succeed in converting a Jew will not be a professional missionary. It's not the lunatic that gets on the bus, and it's not the person standing in Hyde Park with a Jews for Jesus t-shirt. These are not the people who succeed, who are employed by One for Israel. It's going to be your sister's roommate in college. It's going to be someone that your cousin is going to meet in the workplace. It's someone that, you, that uh, your friends are going to meet in the cafeteria. It's 
lay people, not the professional missionaries. Rule number two is it's not going to be someone who was Jewish who converted to Christianity. It's going to be someone who was never Jewish. So it's this army of lay Gentile evangelical Christians. These are people who begin with a social connection. It doesn't begin with a tract. I have never in 40 years of doing this met a single Jew who was handed a track going on to a, a, a bus by Jews for Jesus and go, oh, I never thought of that. Where do I get baptized? That's not how it goes down. It starts with a, a social encounter that people become friends, uh, relying on that person, going through a stressful part of their lives, and, and then they're more susceptible to the message. And let me be frank, I'm going to say this very straight away. Listen very carefully, and I'm talking to the Jews now. If you're not Jewish, you can listen in, but this is for the Jewish people in particular. The success of Jews for Jesus represent the unpaid bills of the Jewish people. That's right. It means that Jews for Jesus can only succeed because we have in some way, in some measurable way, failed to inoculate to give a proper Jewish education to our kids. So it's true that young men and women who have a very strong Jewish education and a very strong Jewish identity that, that combined, they're the least likely to convert to Christianity, join the ranks of Jews for Jesus. Conversely, it's those Jews who have no Jewish education. Worse, they have a little Jewish education. They have that Hebrew school education, the kind of Jewish education that two hours a week education that's enough to spark an interest in God, but nowhere near enough to satisfy that interest of God. Those are the people that are most vulnerable. That's why our organization is called Outreach Judaism. We're reaching out to Jewish people who are most vulnerable. And I want to just... I must say this, because if I didn't, I would, I, I wouldn't, this wouldn't be justice to the viewers. It should be said that the vast majority of Christians who eventually decide to convert to Judaism, I'm sure you've met uh, righteous converts to the Jewish faith, if you ask them what, what kind of Christian were you? They tell you, oh, I was a Bible-believing, Bible-thumping Christian. Mostly, these are not high church Anglicans who were not knowledgeable about their religion. These are, for the most part, not going to be Episcopalians or Unitarian Universalists. For the most part, these are the most knowledgeable Christians who were whose curiosity about Judaism was ignited and they're the ones who are most likely to embrace the Jewish faith. So that should tell you something. So it's true that um, if someone has a very strong Jewish education, the likelihood of them assimilated, assimilating, the likelihood of that person abandoning their faith is, 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 is lessened considerably. We're very, very worried about Jewish people who just never had a chance, who were therefore susceptible to the, to the transparent, what would otherwise be a transparent message of Jews for Jesus. Can you give us, uh, just before we go on to the theological stuff, can you give us an idea of the numbers in terms of how many uh, Jewish people, are, as a result of Christian missionaries, are becoming uh, Christian? 
these are really, I'm not going to say these are complete guesses because there have been surveys done both in North America and in Western Europe of Jews that have converted to Christianity, probably because of evangelism, not because they just married someone who was a Christian and got baptized in order to have in order to have a uniform family, probably in the area of 300,000 Jews who have been, who missionaries have succeeded in converting uh, to Christianity. That's just, you know, it's a guess. It's, it's somewhere around the this, size this of every when? Jew in Chicago. This is since when? Since, the, the, since 1973, and that's a key term. In fact, the 73 is called in this circle, Key 73, it's the year that Jews for Jesus was launched. It, it's not an arbitrary time. Um, in 72, five years after the 67 war, Christians believed it was essential to evangelize Jewish people to Christianity. I'll just very quickly explain why. Or else, um, f Evangelical Christians believe that the liberation of Jerusalem by Israel in June of 67 was a critical prophetic point. Many Jewish people believe that as well. And they believe that that was essential for Jesus' second coming. They believed also that Jesus was going to make a second coming in and around the year 2000. You might remember that. But this is where it gets, this is where the rub comes in. These fundamentalist Christians believe uniformly that Jesus cannot make his second coming unless a mass of Jews are first converted to Christianity. And this is where Jews play a completely unique role in evangelism. Evangelical Christians want to convert the world. They don't want to just convert the Jews. They want to convert people of Latin America, and there are plenty of missionaries there. The difference is that they believe that the conversion of the Jew will fulfill a passage at the end of Matthew 23, verse 39, where Jesus, we are told, says, I will not return unless you say, Blesses he that comes in the name of the Lord. Because Jesus was speaking to a Jewish audience when he's purported to have said that, the church understands that to mean one thing. What Jesus is actually saying is, I cannot make my second coming unless you, the Jews, are baptized unless you come to the cross, unless you come to Calvary, unless you're covered in the blood. And therefore, these evangelicals target the Jewish people, spend an inordinate amount of money and human re and resources to evangelize the Jews to trigger the second coming of Jesus. So they were going back to the early 70s. In the early 70s, evangelical Christians were trying to figure out this, why is it how has it been that the Jews of all people are the most difficult to convert? I mean, Christianity swept through Europe like wildfire. South America converted overnight. Countries like Brazil, the largest Roman Catholic country in the world, just in the blink of an eye, the Jews with all their problems, why has the church been so ineffective in converting them? The Church of England would have loved to have converted them, but the Jews left, and they left for a very many centuries because they were unwilling to get baptized. What's the key? What's the secret? And they discovered two things, and this is really we're getting this is critical. 
they discover there are two unique features about the Jew. Number one, Jewish people don't want to become Christians because Jewish people by and large feel that by becoming a Christian, you're jettisoning, you're abandoning your Jewish identity. You're divorcing yourself from your people. We're a nation, after all. Judaism is almost completely unparalleled on many, in many ways, but one of them is we're an ethno-religious group. We're a nation, we're people related and have a faith, and that's unheard of. So the Jewish people, even those who are not observant, not religious, are proud, most are proud of their Jewish identity, and they recognize that becoming a Christian means that you're walking away from your Jewish identity. Second, they discovered that Jewish people strongly associate Christianity with persecution for good reason. The church, good Christians are deeply ashamed of Christian history, in particular that history that related to the Jewish people. None of the church fathers uh, were philo-Semitic. All of them hated the Jews, as were the reformers. And they recognized that we have to change the message, and that is, you're Jewish, we love you, Praise the Lord. So they had to change that message, and they had to say that when you're becoming a believer in Jesus, you're not converting to Christianity. You're not abandoning your Jewish faith. Quite the contrary. You're becoming a completed Jew. You're becoming a fulfilled Jew. And that's what was discovered in the early 70s. And that has been, to the horror of Jewish communities worldwide, a, an astonishing success. And with that, you launched a period of Jewish evangelism that led to the apostasy of hundreds of thousands of Jews worldwide. Wow. Okay, so let's dive right into the theological stuff. So I would say give me your elevator pitch, but uh, we have a little bit longer than that. But in a nutshell, in a couple of minutes, why, you know, imagine you've only got a few minutes to talk to uh, our viewers here. Why don't Jewish people believe in Jesus? That's the mother load of all questions. And, and it becomes difficult for Christians to get this because we're using the same words. The semantics are the same. We're both Christians and Jews are using words like Messiah. But what we mean by those words are something completely entirely different. We're using the word Bible, but we mean something really different and not in an obvious way that Christians have a New Testament. The fundamental reason why Judaism doesn't accept the Christian Messiah is because the fundamental core teachings of the church are opposed by the Jewish scriptures. What we believe in is called rabbinic Judaism. I want the viewer to get this straight. Our chief rabbi is Rabbi Moses. In fact, we call him Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher of blessed memory. Joshua, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. These are the greatest rabbis of the Jewish people. They're prophets. Their message is the core center of our faith. We rely on their immortal words, their, the oracles that they conveyed and were recorded in Tanakh as the foundation of what we believe and what we devote our life to and what we'd be willing to give our life for. The teachings, the core teachings of the church are opposed by the prophets of Israel. That's the fundamental reason. The Jewish scripture tells us about a Messiah, but the Mashiach, we are told by the prophets, will dramatically change the world. 
just as Moses dramatically changed the circumstances of the children of Israel. It's not that Moses did it, but God used him as his servant, as his messenger. When Mashiach comes, the knowledge of God will cover the world as the water covers the sea. I didn't make those words up. Isaiah tells us that in chapter 11, verse 9. No one will ever question God, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 31. All the nations will speak in a pure speech. Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. So the scriptures tell us that the Messiah is not going to be doing all these miracles that are described in the Gospels. In the Gospels, when you read the Gospels, as soon as you start reading it, what you've, after you get past the infancy narrative of Matthew, Jesus is just going around doing miracles, healing the blind. There's nothing remotely resembling that in the Jewish Bible. It's not that he won't do a miracle. It's just very important to God not to mention that in the Jewish scriptures. What is found in the Jewish scriptures is that he will give hoichacha, which means rebuke to the nations. The result is clear. They're going to take their implements of war, swords and spears, and transform them into implements of agriculture, uh, pruning hooks and plowshares. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn of war anymore. I implore you, the viewer, read the first five passages of Isaiah chapter 2. These are the most ecstatic, numinous, messianic verses in all of Tanakh. They're so important that the United Nations, our good friends, even have a Isaiah wall right across the street with these passages laid out that nation will not lift up sword against nation. That's how important this is. These are the, the ingathering of the exiles, that God will bring back our people from afar. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6, tells that I'll take my children, my sons and daughters who are in the north and furthest most islands, and I will bring you home to the land of Israel. That's a promise. It's a highly falsifiable claim. These are not like you'll feel good, there'll be rumors of war, there'll be a volcano. Well, there's been all of that all over the place. These are very specific prophecies recorded in Tanakh in tough times, highly falsifiable. If the children of Israel would, would have disappeared, you can take the Torah and throw it in the garbage where it would properly belong. But the Torah says that you are an eternal nation and a light to the nations, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. We are told in, in Tanakh that there will be a building of a third temple that will stand forevermore. In fact, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel describe it's the most copious detailed prophecies in all of Tanakh of the third temple. Describe exactly what it looked like, its measurements right there. Look at the last three passages of Ezekiel 37, a temple that will stand in Jerusalem when no one who is uncircumcised of the heart or the flesh will enter, Ezekiel 44, verse 9. These are clear messianic passages that we would all know the resurrection of the dead. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Isaiah identifies the grave as those who are in the grave as Sheikh Neofer, those who are temporary residents of the earth. It's a, the, 
burial, the a grave is a temporary dwelling place because there's a resurrection. These are all clear, transparent, highly verifiable prophecies. These are not these vague things that I feel good and my life has changed and I stopped doing drugs. Every religion produces people who go through personal, subjective life changes. We're talking about objective things that you could see. What happened during the first century? Did any of these things occur? None of them happened. The Jews were not gathered into the land of Israel, and there was no peace. On the contrary, the Jewish people were at war with the Roman Empire, which culminated in a war that lasted for three and a half years from 66 to 70, that led to the destruction of the temple, not the building of the temple, that led to the exile of the Jewish people from their land, not the gathering in the Jewish people to the land, the exile throughout the empire of the Jewish nation in the year 70 did not lead to a worldwide knowledge of God. Quite the contrary. It weakened the knowledge of God and it weakened Jewish observance. If you wanted to know what it is that the Messiah is not supposed to do, look at the Christian century. The Christian century perfectly outlines the reciprocal, the opposite of what's supposed to occur in the Messianic age. Moreover, the claim of the church that the Messiah is God is, if I offend you, I say it with my heart, I apologize, but I know you want it straight. You're not listening to me because you want applesauce. You want, you want, Here's the real deal. The real deal is that worshiping a man as God is absolute idolatry. God says, Anochi el v'loyish, Hosea chapter 11, verse 9. I am God and I am not a man. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. He's not a mortal that he will change his mind. Don't bother with coming up with philosophy. Well, couldn't God become a man? The Torah says that God cannot be a man. Worship nothing that flies in the heaven above or walks on the earth below. That's the Ten Commandments. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. The, the Tanakh is pregnant with the message that there is one God and there is no other. Ain od. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. In fact, the very role of the Jewish people is to convey this to the world. There is no trinity. There is one radical Unitarian, one God and no other. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you should know, believe me, and understand that I am him, Kiani Hu, before me there was no God formed, besides me, after me, there will not be one formed. I, even I am the Lord, and besides me, ve'en milvadai Mashiach, and besides me, there is no Savior. I didn't make that up. You're not, this is, these are not the words of a, of a rabbi who doesn't care for Christianity. These are the words of Isaiah chapter 43, verse 6. Every Jew says that in his prayers every single morning. Put not your trust in princes, and in the Son of Man there is no salvation. I mean, like what, what part of the memo aren't you getting? Do you understand? So Christ, the core teachings of Christianity are completely alien to Tanakh. The notion that you have to 
eat the body and drink the blood of the Messiah, the Eucharist? The Eucharist is all over the New Testament. It's in the earliest surviving Christian literature, the letters of Paul, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 26. Eat the body and drink the blood of the Messiah. You find that in, in all the Gospels. That is in, in, in Luke 22, John 6. It's all over the place. Take my word for it. That idea is completely antithetical to the Jewish faith. Moreover, the prophet tells us that the Messiah will fear God. Fear God. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. Please, I beg you, read it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. If, don't be offended by this, but if you're in the church, there's a distinct possibility because you've been taking the word of a man for it. So why don't, let me get myself out of the way. Read Isaiah 11, verse 2 and 3. Everyone knows this is talking about the Messiah. He is the descendant of Jesse. And it says there he will be filled with the fear of God. Why would God fear himself? Is God psychotic? God doesn't fear anything. So it is, it is these tenets of Christianity that are opposed by the Jewish scriptures. It's not like some bias. One other caveat, and that is, it doesn't mean that Christianity doesn't contain truths in it. Of course it does. It's, it, but anything true in the New Testament isn't new. And anything new in the New Testament isn't true. It's just that simple. So, of course, Christianity has borrowed a lot of Jewish ideas, which we're very happy about. It's everything that was introduced that's completely new. Those things aren't good for you. That's the message. Right. Um, you know, I, you actually reminded me about, uh, I remember saying this years ago in, in uh, the Torah reading of Re'eh, uh, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 13, which says, if there will arise among you um, someone that claims to be a prophet and he performs miracles and wonders and then says, don't keep the Torah anymore, do not believe him, God is testing you, which is like, <laughs> could it be any more clear? Um, but I wonder if just, just briefly, um, because we're a little bit short on time, but if we could talk about some of the main arguments and some of the main re responses that missionaries would make to you. <coughs> because, uh, you know, let's say they were listening to you talk and they heard all of this. What are some of the key messages that they would say to you? Because I think one of the things they might say is, yeah, but what about this, this? It's the second coming where all these messianic prophecies will happen. There's a second coming. They might say, okay, God might not become a man, but Jesus was the son of God, so to speak. So he's divine, but not quite God. And, you know, they also well, talk let's about... Well, take, let's take those two, because they're also... Take those let's two, just, go on. Let's take those two. And, and, and throw in any, any other things that you, are some of the main arguments made by missionaries. Right, so Christians would go, well, he didn't do these things in this first go-around, but in the second coming, he's sure going to do all these things. How delightful. The idea of a second coming is, while it does very successfully to someone who is not familiar with the Jewish scriptures, explain away any false messiah. It means anybody could be the messiah. My sister-in-law could be the messiah. Ah, she didn't do anything. It's a second coming. So while a second coming explains away any false messiah, the idea is completely alien, unknown to the Jewish scriptures. You have to insert a second coming in order to explain away in a complete failure. 
I don't want to get too technical, but in the Christian Bible, the claim is made that Jesus' is second his second coming when all these gr the great stuff is going to happen is imminent. There are many of you here standing here that will not taste of death before these things will occur. Um, there, this generation will not pass away before this occurs. Look it up in Mark 9, Mark 13. It's all over the place. It means the rise of the New Testament thought that it was imminent. It never happened. Revelation, the last book in the Christian Bible, ends with Jesus saying, I'm coming back quickly in 2,000 years is not not haste. So the, the second coming idea does explain away a false messiah, and it's, it suffers from, the, from that malady of unfalsifiability, and it's not found in the Jewish scriptures. And isn't it strange, isn't it odd, that all the claims that Christians make, that, that Jesus did do some things, not like he did nothing, isn't it interesting that all the things he supposedly did like come into Jerusalem on a donkey, or two donkeys, depending if you read Matthew or Luke, we'd have no way of knowing it today if he fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. There would be, it's something that you can't look it up. A lot of people came into Jerusalem on a donkey. We can, moreover, Zechariah 9.10 continues the message, and that is that he will speak peace to the nations and his sovereignty free from river to the ends of the earth. So he didn't do that. So all the things he supposedly did, um, like all the things that Romulus did and Vespasian ran around doing, we're told, healing the blind and are not found in the Jewish scriptures, and those things are, we wouldn't be able to, we, we no way to verify it. It means any religion then could be true. Then, then no religion could be falsified. And this is really, really important. So that's where that fails. Your second question was, remind me of the second question? About rather than Jesus being God, he's the son of God. So he has to Oh, yeah. Yeah. So th this, this is really a good question. I write about this in volume one of Let's Get Biblical. I have a whole chapter on this. So yet the, the term son of God is a, a very elastic term. So as it turns out, I'm the son of God, and so are you, and Jesus is no more or less a son of God than any of us. How do I know? The Torah says so. Deuteronomy chapter 14, You are children of the Lord your God. You have to be very careful, and this is how the interview began, the linguistics here. We have to be very careful about semantics. We are interested in what it what is meant what is conveyed in these words so in a the christians have adopted a greek sense of the son of god in the greco-roman world the son of god meant that you were literally divine that means the son of a giraffe is a giraffe he's not as great as the father giraffe but he is a giraffe so that means you were divine the in the i'll, I'll explain it through this way in the Greco-Roman world, they embraced a view that's called henotheism. Henotheism means, it, heno, that's the Greek word for one, there's one great god, Zeus, Jupiter. And then there was a whole series of other gods, lower tier gods, lowest tier are multiple gods that are both mortal and divine at the same time. Emperors of Rome, Octavius, Caesar Augustus, Julius Caesar, born of virgins, incidentally, we're told Romulus, the founder of Rome, Vespasian, healing the blind and, and the crippled all over the place, divine. Um, P 
Pythagoras, the great thinker, divine, born to a virgin. Uh, Hercules, the great athlete, he was, his mother was, got pregnant because she slept with Zeus. I mean, th this is how it, this is how Greeks thought. When they said, they were really, they were logical in a strange sense, meaning they were people they thought that was so great, they had to be divine too. That's what the Son of God means in the book of Mark. That's what the Son of God means in the Christian Bible. When we use the term Son of God, we mean it the way the Tanakh means, so it's the exact same words, but something else. It means that you are performing the will of Hashem on earth and that every person, Jew and Gentile, is created, but Kim is created in the image of God. There's a neshama, a soul within us, a metaphysical soul, an eternal soul that's within every human being that is a part as a divine spark, and therefore we can fulfill the will of Hashem, and we are children of Hashem in that way. That means we're followers of Hashem, or we have the potential to follow Hashem, or we can abandon that mandate. So be very careful with this. We're all using the same words. We both use terms like Satan. We mean something completely different, by the way. There's some relationship between the two, but then be very careful. So. Yes, that, that's how we mean the Son of God. That's because that's how Tanakh means the Son of God. Right. And what about the concept of the suffering servant? I believe in Isaiah, it talks about that there will be uh, a servant of God that will come, I think, at the end, end of times. And some people talk about that there's a, a Moshiach, a Messiah that's descended from Joseph that will pave the way for the son of um, the Messiah that's descended from David. And the Messiah, son of Joseph, uh, may die in sort of one of the final battles, and that sounds quite Jesus-like. How much time do you have? <laughs> so here we go again. We're using the same term like Messiah, but we mean something very different. Now, I, I'm going to surprise you, the viewer. As it turns out, the Messiah is called many things in the Jewish Bible except the Messiah. He's never called the Messiah in Tanakh. I know that's very surprising, but for right now, take my word for it. The word Messiah, Mashiach, appears many times in Tanakh. In fact, it appears 39 times. In every case, it's referring to priests like me. I'm a Kohen, descendant of Aaron. That's why the word Mashiach appears more frequently in the book of Leviticus than any of the book of the Bible. It's referring to uh, prophets. It's referring to people who are anointed for a certain purpose. Even a non-Jew, Cyrus, in Isaiah 45.1, is called God's Messiah. He's not the Messiah, but he's carrying out the will of God, in that case, ordering the Jews, telling them that they can return to back to the land of Israel from where they were exiled a half a century earlier. So as it turns out, these the word Mashiach just means that someone was anointed for a leadership position. Okay, now, let's just talk about the Messiah, the son of Joseph. So the Messiah, the son of Joseph, has nothing to do with the Messiah, the son of David, except that they're both eschatological, meaning they both relate to the end of days. We are told in Zechariah chapter 12 that there will be a war with surrounding nations when the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, when nations will attack the Holy Land. And God will strengthen the Jewish people and will succeed victoriously. 
in that final war. In that war, we're told that a person gets killed. And that causes an enormous consternation and sadness, a mourning. It ignites a great mourning among the Jewish people. And that mourning causes us to repent to do tshuva. It is vital for the viewer to understand that it is the repentance of the Jews alone that triggers the coming of Mashiach. Isaiah 59, verse 20, we say it in our prayers each day, and a Zion will come forth the Redeemer to the only to when Jacob repents. So therefore, God can use a military figure. Some hold that it's a series of soldiers, but a, a person who dies, or soldiers that die in war, and that triggers a mourning. Read the text for yourself, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, all the way through the end of the passage chapter. And that triggers the repentance of the Jewish people, which in turn triggers our repentance, which in turn triggers the coming of, of the Messiah, the son of David. Messiah, the son of David, doesn't die, doesn't get killed, and he's not related to the son, Messiah, son of Joseph. Messiah, the son of David, is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, that the descendants of King David will continue to rule as long as there is a king over the Jewish people, and it will never be ripped away from the Davidic house as it was to Saul, David's predecessor. So we have to be very careful in that we're using words. And in fact, in Jewish literature at times, we can use the word Mashiach ben David and Messiah the son of David and Messiah the son of Joseph and that could get, these things can get conflated and more dangerously, it could be abused by our spiritual opponents as a handle, as a weapon against us. The source for the Messiah, the son of Joseph, as I told you, is Zechariah 12. The term isn't there. If you want to find the term, you'll find it in the Talmud and Tractate Sukkah 52b. That's the source for it. So it has nothing to do with the Messiah and the Son of David, except it's end time. It's a, a method, a device that God may use to trigger the repentance of the Jewish people. Now let's get back to Isaiah, where there's a suffering servant. This is where people get in trouble. This is the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, and I, I want you, the viewer, to understand this. You could say with certainty that the author of the book of Isaiah in, believed, hoped, anticipated that you had read the chapters that introduced it before you read the 53rd chapter. Imagine picking up any book of 66 chapters and, and jumping right to the 53rd chapter. Think about what that's, that's are what the chances. That's what I did in my, in my English literature homework, I have to admit. Right. Well, that's what happens. That's that's the, if you if you, if Skip that's reading. this is like what's called this is like a helicopter helicopter landing. Like you're landing just right in the middle of a book. You know, the Bible is you can't engage in what's called salad bar hermeneutics, and that's what Christians do routinely. I'm talking about Christian missionaries. I'll take that and I'll ignore that and I'll take that. Can't do that. We it is axiomatic that Isaiah anticipated that by the time you got to 53, you have already read the chapters that introduce it. 
Here's the memo. Isaiah 53, as it turns out, is the fourth of four servant songs. The servant has already been identified. Where? In Isaiah 41, verse 8 and 9. The servant is the nation of Israel, not all the Jews, just those who are loyal to God, like Abraham, my friend. That's where it comes from. That term, Abraham, my friend, comes from that passage. Isaiah 42, verse 6. Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11. Atem eidainu Hashem avdi Hashem I mentioned that earlier. You are my witnesses. Eidai is plural. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant. Why does Isaiah call the servant witnesses in the plural? Because Isaiah is using a device of speaking of the nation in the singular because not only do we have a singular, a joint uh, history, but we have a glorious singular destiny. One point for those of you who have not read the book of Isaiah, literally 60 out of 60 chapters in the book are written with dense poetry. Only six chapters are written with using standard prose, like a standard narrative, like you would expect to find books like Joshua and Judges and, and Samuel and Kings. There you could just read through a story after story, and it just reads really easy. I mean, you might not know why you're being told the story, but you at least understand the story. Isaiah doesn't mean anything remotely like that. Neither does Ezekiel or Jeremiah. But Isaiah, by far, is the most difficult. I mean, once you know what you're doing, you've got to read the context when you're reading a book that's using this dense poetry. And I don't mean Shakespearean poetry. It's not that. It means dense language that's highly symbolic, and there's no question about the message. Isaiah 44, verse 1. Isaiah 44, verse 21. Isaiah 45, verse 20. Isaiah, excuse me, 45, verse 4. Isaiah 48, verse 20. Isaiah 49, verse 3. You see where this is, you see the trajectory where this is going? If you read all these chapters, the prophet identify his servant, God's servant, as the nation of Israel. Not all the nation, but the remnant of Israel, whose job it is to be a light to the nations and needed to gather back those who, are, those who have lost their way among the Jews, the lost tribes of Israel. What happens in Isaiah 53, it's a messianic chapter, the nations, the Gentile nations are speaking here. For those of you who enjoy... Shakespearean poetry, it's a soliloquy, which means it, 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 the nations, the kings of nations are speaking. How do you know? It says so. Isaiah 52, 15, the last passage of the chapter. Kings will be astonished. The kings of the nations will, be, will not believe what they're encountering because what they're seeing is like nothing they had ever thought about. What they're finally witnessing is like something they never heard. And they ask the question, who would have believed this? That's how Isaiah 53 begins. So the nations of the world are speaking here in those first eight verses of Isaiah 53. The kings of nations are astonished at the end of days, and they have two fundamental questions. Why did the Jews suffer so much? Now, this is really important because now, until the Messiah comes, the nations of the world attribute Jewish suffering largely 
because they claim the Jews rejected their prophets, the demigods, and nations. Do you know why the Jews suffer so much? They had it coming. They rejected the Lord. They rejected this prophet. They rejected that prophet. And that's why the Jews suffer so much. That works until the Messiah comes. Once the Messiah comes, the nations of the world discover what to them was unfathomable. And that is that the Jews all this time were correct. If the Jews were worshiping the true God and did not reject prophets who were true prophets, then how then do you explain Jewish suffering? You then revert back to the question to which you thought you had an answer to. And therefore, they, the Gentile nations draw two conclusions. One is the most obvious. From the, the Jews suffered for the transgressions of my people. We suffered as a direct transgressions of the Germans and the Austrians and the Poles and the Hungarians. Need I say more? We suffered as a direct result of the bad behavior of the non-Jews. So that's the first thing they're going to say. The second part is really much, is, is really ecstatic, quite numinous, and really deep. If you could wrap your mind around this, you're going to go places. If you encounter people who are not Jewish, who became Jewish, or people who became B'nai Noach, means they embraced the Jewish faith without converting, and you ask them, tell me, what triggered your curiosity about the Jews? Why do you feel that kinship about the Jews? They will convey to you that, in fact, they were studying about the suffering of the Jews, the Shoah, the pain, the, the willingness of the Jew to suffer for his faith. I've met so many people who said they watched, a, watched the play or the film Fiddler on the Roof and that it had a big effect on them. Fiddler on the Roof ostensibly is a fiction, like there's no real place called Nanatevka, but really is, it's very real. It's, 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 it's a, a little village, in, presumably in the, in the pale of the Russian settlement where Jews lived and ultimately were thrown out of. And, th and the Jews moved on, and the Jews survived. The Gentiles will admit that, in fact, Jewish suffering triggered within us a desire to repent, turned us around and brought us closer to the Jew, us, brought us closer to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By his stripes we are healed. What the church will do to this vulnerable chapter, I say it's vulnerable because it's poetic. And whenever a chapter is poetic and using all this imagery, of course it's much more vulnerable by to way, abuse. a question, what does it mean by his stripes? What are, what are the stripes? By his suffering. That means the Jews were beaten. The servant of God was beaten. But from it, we repented. We changed our ways because we saw the suffering of the Jewish people. It brought us a healing for us. We also recognize fully that the Jewish people suffered as a direct result of the bad behavior of non-Jews. Let me share this with you. I served as rabbi for five years in Indonesia. Forget why for right now, but I did. Earthquakes in Indonesia were routine, as were volcanoes. But that's not typical for Jewish suffering. Jews typically don't suffer from natural disasters. We suffer from non-Jews, <laughs> the ones who to do it. I mean, and they're the ones who cause our misery, our suffering, whether wherever, 
we, we suffer as a result of their bad behavior. So that's what the message is in Isaiah 53. It's acknowledgement of the non-Jew that we suffered, the Jews suffered as a result of the bad behavior of the non-Jew, and we served as a light to the non-Jew. And the term light to the Gentiles is that phrase, even though it's, People think it must be all over the place. It's unique to Isaiah, and it's unique to the servant songs, Isaiah 49.6 and 42.6. It's unique to that. And then in verse 9, the chapter pivots of 53. God takes over and speaks for the last four verses. There are 12 verses in this chapter. In the last four verses, God speaks or resumes speaking. And God says, I'm going to make a deal with the servant if the servant, if my servant will repent, turn to God, and then God promises that they'll have long life, have children, and the desire of God will succeed in their hands. This, of course, doesn't apply to Jesus for a million reasons. He didn't live a long life and he didn't have kids. Why would, if the Messiah is God, why would God be promising God that he's going to have kids and a long life? I mean, this is completely ridiculous. And the last point is there are places in this chapter where God speaks of the servant in the plural, in the plural. Remember, it goes back and forth. It's poetry. So what do you think the Christian Bibles do with the plural pronouns? Switches it to the singular so that you don't see that it's speaking about a nation rather than a single individual. And then if you don't read Hebrew, you're finished, you're fried, you have no chance. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I, I do want to ask you before we finish, where's the balance here between on the one hand opposing uh, Christian missionary work, but on the other hand, you know, being respectful to people that are Christian and also welcoming uh, you know, the, the transition that we've seen in the last few decades of Christian uh, and Jewish relations and Christian support for, for Israel, which I know is a complex matter in and of itself um, because of the question of motivations. But basically, just how do we get the balancing act right? That's yeah, a very good question. So first, let's clear, let's, let's clear the smoke away. Let's clear up the air. So the only people who are involved in Jewish evangelism today are fundamentalist evangelical Christians. Catholics aren't doing this. Anglicans, uh, I should say the liberal wing of the Anglican Church isn't doing this. The conservative Anglicans are very involved in Jewish evangelism. And for many who don't understand, the Church of England is completely split except in ritual. And there's the high church. But it's the fundamentalist evangelical Christians that are engaged in this, not liberal, not the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. He can care less about this. And Hillary Clinton, who's a Methodist, is not interested in converting Jews. Okay, so let's just say who's doing it, the Catholic Church. They've got problems of their own. They're not engaging in this. So the question is... who. Christians are getting shot in the crossfire. People who are not, who are respectful of Judaism or who would not engage in evangelism, obviously many things I've said here are troubling. So this is going to be what it's required. I'm going to tell you the way it is, that it's vital for Christians, and this is really up to Christians. It's not up to Jews. It's up to 
of mainline Christians, liberal Christians, who believe in a genuine ecumenical relationship with Jewish people, not with some sort of agenda, not with some sort of game. You just genuinely want to undo the damage of 2,000 years of bad behavior in the church. It's going to require Christians to do more than just say, we all believe in the same God. It's going to require the moderates to stand up and to be heard and condemn Jews for Jesus very loudly. There is no other way. You, the you who's a mainline or liberal Christian, you're a, a Unitarian Universalist. You have to condemn the bad behavior of the Southern Baptist Convention, as you did when it came to issues like slavery. You need to speak up on this issue. You need to be heard, and you need to. Um, out these people. And that's the only way there could be a genuine relationship. Without that, we're left on our own and we have to defend our faith. There's, there's nothing more precious to the Jew than his faith. Nothing, nothing. That's the most important thing. So I, I, I was not elected as the spokesperson, as the advisor to the Christian religion. I didn't get the, the postcard of the mail yet from Rome. But if I were advising Rome, I would say you need to speak about this much more forcefully in order to get over this hump. It's not up to the Jews to, we are right now, um, evangelical Christians are using us for target practice. You need to, you need to speak up about your co-religionists. If you don't approve it, speak up more forcefully. That's what needs to be done now. Well, uh, Rabbi Singer, it's really uh, great to speak to you, and I think a huge amount of information was put across in this interview, so thank you for that. I'd like to finish just by uh, sharing uh, something which was said to me on a previous interview that I did with Rabbi Manis Friedman. The title was, Do We Need God or Does God Need Us? And he said he was once approached by a Christian missionary who said to him, Do you believe in the Savior? And he said, I'm not interested in God serving me. I'm much more interested in serving God. And I think that really summarizes one of the big differences between Judaism and I think other religions. Um, it was a beautiful thing to hear. And apparently the, the Christian missionary actually started crying. He said, I never thought of that. <laughs> never thought of that. So um, anyway, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, perhaps we'll do this again one day. Thank you for having me.